Father, this morning we come to you, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Another day in the land of the living. Another day to serve you. Another day to glorify you, Lord. This morning, for all those who are on this part of the globe where it is day, I commit them into thy hands, O Lord, and I pray your hand would rest upon them, that you would empower us to serve you. All the others who are on the other side of the globe, night has set in. I speak your rest, O Lord, for it is written, you give your beloved rest, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Help us each to operate from rest, whether it is work or sleep, because rest comes from you, Lord. As we look into your word, Father, I pray you will speak to us once again. For when God speaks, lives change. Destinies change, nations change, churches change, homes change. When God speaks, because he always speaks light and he speaks life. Speak to us this morning again, O Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, amen. amen. So when God speaks, we turn to the book of Joshua, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass, the Lord spoke. Okay, he spoke. And he spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, yesterday, Sunday morning, we looked at Actually, what happens when God speaks and we have a God who speaks and why that's why it's so important that we hear. And God has spoken in the past through his prophets. He has spoken in the last days through his son and he continues to speak through his spirit. And what has already been spoken is recorded in the word of God and in the lives of his God's saints, the cloud of witnesses. Now coming to verse 2, he says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, arise and go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving, Sam, it's too sharp, giving it to them, the children of Israel. God begins saying that, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, okay, there's an urgency there. Now, therefore, Arise. Okay? Moses is dead. Moses is dead. Okay? If you, if you know scripture right from the time of Abraham, from, you will see in scripture, actually in 34.8, if I'm right, Deuteronomy 34.8. The children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. So the days of weeping and mourning for Moses ended. Okay, God gave them 30 days to mourn. The old covenant, you will see this, 30 days. He gave them a month to grieve, to mourn, to weep. And now he's saying, now arise. There's a finality here. It's not that Moses is sick or Moses is weak. Moses is dead. Moses is dead. There's a finality to it. Moses is dead. Okay? I've given you time to mourn. I've given you time to grieve. Now, 
arise. Now arise. We need to understand what God is trying to tell us in the in each of these contexts. Fear, grief, anger, not fear. Let us look at first grief and anger. Grief and anger are God-given emotions. Fear is not. Fear is not. I have not given you, he says. So fear is not a God-given emotion. It is a demon or a devil-given emotion. What God gives us is the fear of the Lord, which is clean, which is pure, which is not equal to the other one. But grief is a God-given emotion. Anger is a God-given emotion because God grieves. God grieved over his creation. So grief is God-given. God is angry. Okay, God is angry at sin. God is angry at evil. God is angry at wickedness. And Jesus was angry at the hardness of the Pharisees. So anger is God-given. Grief is God-given. But the problem is They are so powerful. They are so powerful. If the direction of grief or anger is wrong, it can cripple you. The title today I wanted was crippled or propelled. Okay. Grief can cripple you. Grief can cripple you. Anger can cripple you and blind you that your direction changes. Your direction changes. Okay, direction. Like this morning I had a mail from somebody down under. Okay. Blinded by anger. Blinded by anger. And this is, we have to be careful. Anger is not, and that's what God says, be angry but do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. Like, you no, know, when they were saying, the reporters were saying, Trump has toned down this weekend's meetings. He said, no, I'm more angry than before at the evil that is taking place. There has to be an anger. We cannot be nonchalant of what is happening. A lot of people are nonchalant. They don't care. They're not interested. Nothing moves them. And they cannot arise. They cannot arise. Either you need to have grief or you need to have anger. If you, if you don't grieve over something that is happening in your life, in your home, in your church, in your nation, or you are not angry at what is not happening, you will not move. And a lot, lot of people are just living simple religious lives. They are not moved by anything. They are not moved by anything. Because these emotions which is God-given is not being used in the right direction. If it is in the wrong direction, you need to realize it can cripple you from the purposes of God. And all your encounters with God will become irrelevant if it is misdirected. Because when grief is misdirected towards self, it becomes self-pity. Self-pity cripples you. Turn with me to the book of uh, Genesis, chapter 37. Remember, this is Sunday evening service. 37, verse 34 and 35. Okay, 37. and This is when Jacob's brothers, uh, sorry, Jacob's uh, ten sons fooled their father. They have sold Jacob, Joseph, but they killed a beast, took his coat, put blood on it and brought it. And when he saw that, he thought his son was dead. Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, moaned for his sons many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. 
Thus his father wept for him. Okay? Now this is directed towards self. This is directed towards self. His son is, son is dead. Son, he thinks his son is dead. But the problem is, who is this man? The question is, who is this man? This is a man who is pivotal in God's history. This is the man out of whom Israel is going to come. This is a man who had an encounter with uh, God at Peniel, met for God, wrestled with God for his blessings. He's got all the blessings, he's got all the promises, he's got the wind behind back. But when an incident takes place and he believes his son is dead and his grief is so intense, but it is misdirected, it's directed towards self. And you know what happens? It cripples him. And we know, we have heard it many. For the next 22 years, he's crippled. The only reason he rises back onto his feet is because he gets the news that Joseph is alive. If he had not heard that Joseph was alive, he would have died in his grief. And the thing is that God still has not finished with him. God has so much for him left to do you will realize this is a man who will serve God till the last day of his life. So this 22 years of his life is a waste. You don't know anything about Jacob of those 22 years until the 21st year or 20th year when famine comes. And then he responds to by famine by sin. But beyond that, you have, not, you have no clue about what's happening in Jacob's life. This is what God is talking about. Okay, He's telling Joshua, arise. Arise. Moses is dead. There's a finality about it. Moses is dead. Certain things, there has to be a finality in our lives. This chapter in my life is closed. Grieve over it. But it is closed. Now, arise. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, and then verse 11. Godly sorrow. So, there is sorrow. There is a sorrow that is godly. So sorrow is of God. Godly sorrow. And then there is worldly or carnal sorrow. Godly sorrow produces repentance, a change of mind leading to salvation. Produces a change of mind. And it leads to salvation. Not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And in this context, in verse 11, he's telling them, you see, you sorrowed in a godly manner. It has brought a change of mind and a change of action. It has actually made things better. Okay? So sorrow is of God. But there is a sorrow that is of the world or which is carnal. Turn to Second Samuel chapter 13, uh, chapter 18. Or you can go to verse, uh, chapter, um, Okay, chapter 18, 33. Second Samuel 18, 33. This is when David gets the news. His son, Absalom, is dead. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. Okay? Over the, over the chamber and wept. He has, his soldiers have won the victory. They are coming back. They are at the city gates. He doesn't go in. He was waiting to hear the news. He had told, don't kill Absalom. Don't kill Absalom. Job did not listen to that command. He killed Absalom, and Absalom is dead. He went over the gate, and as he went, he said thus, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died in your place. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. This is worldly grief. It's ungodly grief. This is worldly grief. A simple question you need to ask. Okay, statement looks good, but is it true? What if you die in the place of Absalom? Is he a guy fit to sit on the throne? 
Okay, so this is a grief that blinds you from the truth. Now go to chapter 19 and we'll read from verse 1 onwards. Job was told, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that was turned into mourning for all the people, for the people heard it and said that the king is grieved for his son. So the victory <laughs> turned into mourning. And the people stole back into the city that day as people were ashamed, steal away when they flee in battle. But the king covered his face and the king cried out with a loud voice from the top. They can hear the wailing. My son Absalom, oh Absalom, my son, my son. Okay, it's a grief. Your father has lost his son. Okay. Then Job came into the house of the king and said, Today you have disgraced all your servants who today have saved your life. The lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines. In that you love your enemies and hate your friends. For you have declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants. For today I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died today, then you would have pleased you. He's being very practical. He says, okay, let us give the other option. Absalom did not die. He lived. He won and you lost. What would have been the result? He would have killed everybody. Would have killed you. So everybody loyal to you, your other sons, everybody would have destroyed them. What is the option you are looking for? What is the option you are looking for? Then it would have pleased you well. Now, therefore, arise. Go out and speak comfort to your friends. For I swear that by the Lord, if you do not go out, not one will stay with you this night. And that will be worse for you than all the evil that has befallen from your youth until now. Then the king arose and sat in the gate. He says, if you don't get up now, it will be one of the, it will be the worst day of your life. He says, because everybody will go back to their homes and they will not rally behind you. Behind you. Therefore arise, go out and speak comfort to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, not one will stay with you this night. And that will be worse for you than all the evil that has befallen you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and sat in the gate. And they told all the people, saying, there is the king sitting in the gate. So all the people came before the king. For every one of Israel had fled to his tent. So this is what we need to realize. This is what we need to realize. Everybody is not entitled to grieve the same way. A king, a leader, cannot grieve like a common man. Wow. Cannot grieve like a common man. Because the reason is that lives are dependent upon him. Okay? So this, these are things which actually God is, when, when he's speaking to Joshua, he's speaking to a leader the next leader of the nation. And he says, you have to have a handle on your grief. You have to handle on it. I know Moses is dead and you're grieving. And you're grieving more than anybody else because you were the closest to Moses. Your loss is very, very personal. The others, it's a corporate loss, but yours is a very personal loss. Others won't feel the sorrow of David. David's loss is very, very personal. The regret, the guilt and all the things as a father. Okay, I didn't raise him up properly. I didn't give him the time he needed. All that you're going through. But don't forget your office. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget who you are. This is who you are. This is who you are. 
this is your office. I still remember one of the pastors who mentored me. When his father passed away, he was in Gujarat preaching. He was on a three-day crusade or whatever. And he got the news in the morning. Your father is dead. The Lord said, continue speaking. You cannot grieve like the others. Cannot grieve like grieve. But you cannot leave your post. Finish and then go. Finish and then go. Because the problem is, if he tells the whole crowd that has gathered and saying that, my father is dead, I need to go back, then everybody will think that is the norm. That is the norm. So there are certain things which are called, these are characteristics of leadership. And God is telling, through actually speaking through Job and says, you know what, this will day will be the worst day in your life. You don't get down and go and sit near the gate because this is a day of victory. You have made it a day of shame. Put your personal feelings aside. Put your personal feelings aside. Okay, your sorrow, your feelings, your guilt aside and act like a leader. Okay, so we need to realize office matters. Office. God gives people offices and office matters. And the weight of the office one should be able to carry. And the weight of the office sometimes overrides all personal loss and person. That's what he's looking at Jacob. You are Israel. <laughs> You're not Jacob. You're grieving like Jacob, but that's not who you are. You are Israel. A destiny of this entire world, the salvation of the entire world is tied to you. And you're sitting there and crying. And he's saying, I want to die. I don't want to live, I want to die. Okay, you're forgetting who you are. So this is where we need to realize. If you go to First Samuel chapter 12, verses 15 onwards. This was many years ago. Second uh, Samuel, Second Samuel, Second Samuel 12, okay? Many years ago. Many years ago when he had lost another child. And this time he is 100% guilty. Okay. Then Nathan departed to his house and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and it became ill. Yeah, let's go further down. David therefore pleaded with God for the child. David fasted, went in, lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose, went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, it came to pass the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. They looked at his grief and said, you know what, he's overwhelmed by grief. If you tell him the child is dead, we don't know what he will do to himself. He may harm himself. Verse 19. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. And then in verse 20, what happens is different. David arose. Okay. Now, in the, in the, in the other situation, which is years later, you don't see him rising. You actually see him falling in grief. But he rises. So this is a man, this is a man through whom we can learn how to believe, how to act, and how not to act. Like I said, it's the spirit of Christ operating through these people. David arose from the ground. We will not go into the details. We have looked at the different things he did. He washed, he anointed, he changed his clothes, he went into, the house of the Lord, he worshipped, 
Then he came to his house, and then he ate. So he did around seven things he did. But the first thing he did is that he arose from the ground. This was the grief that could have taken him down. Taken him down. Okay. So the grief that would have taken him down. The reason, the reason why these things are important is that, you know what? Leadership, even when it is given by God, you are placed over carnal man. You need to realize carnal man. So you are on a very delicate position. And therefore, weakness is not accepted in leadership. Other than a God-given weakness. It's not allowed in weak because you know what? There are carnal men will use those opportunities to destroy you. To destroy you. So Moses was never weak before man. He was weak before, before God. Because there were men waiting to take his position, including his own household. And David's sons were waiting for an opportunity to get rid of their father and become king. Okay? So, grief, there is a grief that is godly. And there is a grief that is deadly. It's a worldly grief. Okay? And God's words to Joshua, why does he use it? Moses is dead. There's a finality to it. Don't sit there grieving. So the Bible says David arose. When David arose, first thing he's doing is that he's accepting the finality, God's verdict. The child is dead. Two, God is righteous. Three, God is good. And in verse 23, you will see there is hope. Verse 23, there is hope. Now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not he shall not return to him. There is also hope. Why is there hope? Because this child is a small baby and the baby is innocent. But with Absalom, he has no hope. He has no hope. There is no hope with Absalom. That's why he's so distraught. But still, you cannot forget your office. Your office is bigger than a person. Office is bigger than a person. God has given you an office. And that the weight of that office is, is incredible. And you cannot allow grief. God will give a season to grief. So he gives you, he understands grief is God given. So you will see this something called 30 days. He says grief for 30 days. In the old covenant. Grief for 30 days. Because if you don't learn to grieve and to overcome and get up, it will cripple the purpose of God in your life. But grief also, like anger, can be a very powerful motivation towards good, the purpose of God. Okay, if it is properly used. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 11 to 12. Now you'll see another man who rises. Okay, Nehemiah has come back to Israel, has come back to Jerusalem, chapter 2. So I came to Jerusalem and was there for three days. Then I arose in the night, and I and a few men with me, I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well, and the refuse gate weaved the walls of Jerusalem, which was broken down, and its gates, gates which were burned with fire. Okay. So, 
The first thing he does is once he comes that he rises in the night. Doesn't rise in the morning. Okay. There is a rising in the night and there is a rising in the day. They are not the same. They are not the same. We need to learn to rise in the night and in the day. What he does in the night that he goes and takes a complete overall look at the damage and the destruction. When we meditate alone in our bed, usually at night, we are looking, taking a very clear-headed look at the mess in our lives. Nights are good for that. Nights are good for that. We look back and think back. It's a mess the previous day, the previous week, the previous, whatever, all that we take a good look at. And we have to see, we have to be very, very brutally honest. And she say, Lord, show me the mess in my life. And God will say, you know what's the problem? The problem is not the enemy. The problem is your walls are down. And your gates have been burned. Your walls are down. If your walls were up, and the gates were firm, these things would not have happened. But if your walls are up and the gates are firm and these things are happened, then it is for a much greater purpose. Like Job, his end was better than the former. So you have to rise up in the night to look. At, at night, what you rise and look, and daytime, what you look are two different things. They are not the same. They are not the same. Okay, so first thing Nehemiah does is that he rises in the night. You will see later Joshua also will rise and he will go and he will look at all that he's saying. Okay, he's given it to us, but how are we going to take it? Okay, when God, God did not say, uh, don't plan for tomorrow. He said, don't worry about tomorrow. Planning for tomorrow and worrying about tomorrow are two different things. So he's looking, okay, God has given me a promise, all this. Now, how do I execute this? But even there, you cannot bring your carnal thinking in. If God is given a promise, then he has to execute it his way. Because you can't do God's work in your way. It is going to be too much for you. You will realize you will never finish that work. Because God's work cannot be done your way or in your strength. Your strength. That's what Moses realizes. He, that's what he realizes. After he sees it all, he comes to God and says, these are your people. If I found favor and grace in your sight, I have to take them from point A to point B. Show me your ways. And God says, my presence will go with you. Will go with you. He didn't give him a map. He said, every day you will have to depend upon me. Every day you will have to depend on me and I will give you rest. So there he is. Okay? So the thing is that it's absolutely clear. Everything is down. The whole thing. He looks at the whole thing. Okay? There is no... Whitewashing, if you go to verse 17. Okay. Yeah, so I went and he comes back. Okay. So I said to them, I said to them, you see the distress that we are in? How Jerusalem lies waste? Its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. He says, do you see the distress? Do you see the waste? And do you see the reproach? Okay. Now, he's talking to the people. He's called the elders and he's telling them, hey, did you see that? But you cannot say that to them if you haven't woken up in the night and seen the destruction. Seen the destruction. So you took, in the night hours, you have taken a very clear look. Because you know what? People are absolutely blinded. 
people are absolutely blinded. I mean, if you look at the waste and the distress and the reproach of America as a nation, the city on the hill, and half the nation doesn't even see. Half the nation does not even, right before their eyes, the greatest nation ever in human history is being destroyed and destroyed so fast. And they are not able to see. You know why they are able to see? Because they are all focused on themselves. They think they will be secure. Remember that I forgot that great philosopher said, you know, when they came for the, I mean, the socialist, I kept silent. Then they came for this one, I kept silent. When they came for this thing, then when they came for me, there was nobody to speak. Nobody to speak. You need to realize, no, there is this evil that is creeping up. There's an evil that is creeping up. No, it's not, it's not even creeping up. I mean, if you look at I mean, if you look at, you, we honestly would ask, what's wrong with the people? What is actually wrong with the people? You don't ever hear anything like that ever happening in human history where one entire border seems to be open. And the number of people who have got into a country illegally, the total number of people, is more than the population of each of the 45 of the 50 states of America. Only five states have more population. Than the immigration, the illegal people. The destruction of a nation completely. Unvetted. Who are these people coming in? Why are they coming in? It's just being brought in. And the neighbor, see, after they start filling the cities, and the cities cannot take care of them, they will start moving into the suburbs. They will start spreading. Okay? The whole, the whole question is, it's not what is happening. The whole question is the blindness of the people. The blindness of the people. Okay? Because nobody is waking up, like we say, and, and smelling the coffee. Coffee. They're not waking up. So here is a man who, before he does anything, meets anybody. He didn't tell anybody. He called a few people who were with him, went in the night, took a complete look at the whole thing. Complete look at the whole thing. Right? Complete look at the whole thing. And then he comes back and says, do you see? You see the distress? He doesn't say, do you the distress you are in? He's not in distress. Because he lives in Susa. He lives in Babylon. He's a king's cupbearer, emperor's cupbearer. He has no distress. Physically, his life is absolutely secure. He doesn't have to worry about tomorrow or the future. He's all probability a eunuch. He has no family to worry about. No inheritance to live. He is living an absolutely comfortable life. But he has identified himself with the distress of God's people and God's purpose and God's plan. This is how a person becomes partaker of God's grief and God's burden and God's reproach. Okay, that's what it is. This is God's distress. This is God's reproach. Okay? Like, yes, last night we were on a call. I mean, George was calling and Corinne and they were talking and he was asking questions, theological questions. Okay? I said one of those fundamental things I see that is different between Paul and the others in the New Covenant. They all became that, but Paul was that. When he had that encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, 
Jesus asked him a question. The question he asked him is that, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And when Paul understands this is Yahweh, whom he always loved and served, but in ignorance, and that when he was persecuting the church, he was persecuting that Jesus so completely identifies with the church, that is thing that motivated him, and he never turned back. Now, if you look at his letters, there was always this element of grief that I hurt Jesus by hurting his people. No? So grief is not a very bad thing. It's a very powerful thing. Because these are things which you cannot take back in your life. What can I do? I killed Stephen. I killed a lot of others. I put a lot in prison. I don't have the power to change my past. But you know what? What I did, I'm going to turn this around and change my future. Now what I'm going to do is that I'm going to take the same, this the grief, and I'm going to serve his people all my life and pour out my life for them. No. This is the redemptive power of grief of what is happening. Redemptive power of grief. And that's what he actually does. So here is a man who actually is well off, but he comes. And then what does he say? Okay, in verse 18. Okay. I told them of the hand of my God which had been good upon me and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. Okay. First he showed them all the distress. Then he showed the good hand of the Lord, which is basically, which means it's your personal testimony. It's your personal testimony. Okay. He said, you know what? I'm the king's cupbearer. And one day the king asked me, and I said, this is, you guys know this doesn't happen with Babylonian emperors. But I had so much favor. I knew the hand of our God was upon the king and upon me. I had favor. He given me permission. He has sent me. So he's giving his testimony. This is where testimonies matter because it encourages people. Like yesterday, I gave a part of a testimony. You don't realize from around the world the response that came in that when that was going on in so many homes where there are, there are uh, children who are sick, with the message on they were praying over the sick because it encouraged them that there is a God who heals and a God who raises the sick and the dead are back to life. So it is the hand of the Lord. It's your showing your distress, your destruction, your practically you're coming to the end of your life and then the Lord intervenes, the hand of the Lord is there and he raises you up and it encourages all the others. So he first shows them the distress and the reproach. Then he gives the word of encouragement. You know what? God has not left us. God is still with us. The hand of my God which has been good upon me and he told them about the king's words. When they heard, what did they all say? Let us rise. Let us rise. Let us rise. So there is a looking at things in the night. And then there is a speaking of things in the light. Both are there. Because you have night and day which God has created. Both has its own purposes. Okay, sorrow may come in the night. 
But joy will come in the morning. In the morning. Sorrow will come in the night because you are taking a very good evaluation of your own life, your situation, whatever it is, you are looked at it all. But if all that you see is night, but you are not able to see light, you will go down into your grave. Because what God saw was darkness. What God spoke is light. He saw darkness. Darkness was covering. There was no form. It was empty and darkness. The three worst adjectives that can be used in any situation. No form. Empty and dark. That's what God saw. But that's not what he said. What he said was light. For emptiness he filled. And what was void he gave it form. This is what he did. And that's what he's talking about. You know what you see in the dark? It's dark. It's empty. And there is no form. Everything is down. But God's hand is upon us. We will rise. It is light now. We will rise. We will build. And we will fill this emptiness and it will have form again. We will build back the gates and the walls. That is how it works. That is how it happens. But, if you go to Nehemiah, because words have a power. Words have power to motivate a nation. No? Nation back to Back to, because you have to identify the problem, like if you see 2024 is coming, elections are coming, so it's going to be probably the last chance for America. Last chance. If the Democrats win, it's over. It's over for America. Probably the last chance for America. But if you look at President Trump's uh, videos he's been putting on, okay, he's putting on videos on, on each issue. America is facing. First, and it's a very, very well done. First, it shows the destruction and the distress in a particular area. And then he shows a solution. Distress, solution. Darkness, light. Darkness, light. You cannot live people in darkness. Because what happens is, you cannot only speak to people light, because they need to see darkness. It was in darkness God spoke light. A lot of people give people false hope because they don't point to their darkness. Others leave people in depression because only speak darkness. There is no hope. There is no light. There is no light. But this is what is happening. What is happening is there is darkness, but there is light. There is light. But light is from God. God is light. Light is the good hand of the Lord. The hand of the Lord has been good upon me and he's shown favor and we can build. We can build. So these two interplays are there always in life. But if you go to uh, Nehemiah chapter 1 and verses 1 to 4. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Chishlev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Sushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah and asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity concerning Jerusalem. They said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. And also what is there? The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates are burned with fire. And verse 4. Verse 4. So it was, 
when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and moaned for many days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This is general news. So many who are in Judah, came from Judah, in Babylon, all heard this news. Only one man was moved by grief. Only that man can be used. Nobody. Either you are moved by grief or you are moved by anger. Oh, of the mess that is happening. You have to be moved. So you will look at the entire book of Nehemiah revolves on words four. Entire book of Daniel revolves on one eight. There is a situation you have come over here, but you are making a decision in your. It's a very personal conviction and decision. From there, the rest of it flows. Entire book of Exodus is on one thing. Moses turned aside. He made a decision. I'm going to take a look. What is this? And then God spoke to him. If he did not turn aside, God is not going to speak to him. There must have been many shepherds over there. They may all have seen. Nobody chose to turn aside. So there is a sovereign will of God and this personal reaction of human being. He has all given us a will. We will all hear the same news, the same message. But the question is, what is your response? Are you moved? Are you moved? Here is a man who is moved. He grieves. He moans. He fasts. And he prays. He moans and grieves over what has happened. Then he fasts and prays towards. And there is no accusing finger towards God. He, if you read the rest of the portion, you will see. He says, you know what? We goofed up. You are right. We goofed up. We messed up. Our forefathers messed up. You were good. We were bad. Your laws were righteous. We sinned. And this, and you had four wonders. You go this way. This is what happened to you. So, taking, this is called taking personal responsibility. Personal. Because he's fasting and praying and taking personal responsibility. Because God says in Isaiah 50, there are people who will fast and pray and then the pointing finger. He says it won't work. Your fasting is good. Your praying is good. But the finger is pointed against me. You are not taking personal responsibility, so I still cannot intervene. Cannot intervene. Then you come to verse 8 and 9. Yeah, same chapter, 8 and 9. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though some of you were cast out to the furthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. So two things are there. You know, God always gives hope. He does not leave us hopeless. He says, this is to consider the goodness and the severity of God. Severity of God is that if you disobey, this is what will happen to you. Well, I, I can't change it. He says, the reason is because I don't change. What I say is truth. And truth is based on laws that I have created. These laws cannot be circumvented. Cannot be circumvented. If the law has to be, the law of gravity cannot be circumvented. It can be only overcome by the law of aerodynamics. So the law of unfaithfulness can be overcome only by the law of repentance. If you are unfaithful, this is what will happen to you. But if you turn back, this is what will happen to you. <laughs> 
I will not turn back what you do to me. Sorry, I cannot do that to you because I am true. These laws are governed by who I am. Who I am. But if you return to me, if you return, that's what repentance is. If you turn, see Elijah's entire prayer on Mount Carmel is Lord, please Lord, all this that, you would turn these people back to you. That's all I'm asking. If you would return and then start obeying me, he says, it does not matter how far you have been scattered. Understand this. I will bring you back. I will bring you back. It doesn't matter how far, how much you have lost. You have to personalize it. You have to look how far is your hope. How far you have been cast away. How far you have been destroyed. He says, don't worry. It's not in your effect. It is in my word. I have said and I am faithful to my word. This is where faith comes. See, when we hear the word of God, if faith does not come, the word falls to the ground. Faith has to come. This is, if you return to me and you obey, keep my commandments. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how bad your destruction is. I will restore. Yet I will gather them from there, bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Because it's got to do with my name. The reproach was to my name. The glory also is to my name. So this is why we need to realize. So if you will turn, and you know, you need to realize, out of the grief of one man, grief of one man, that grief caused him to turn to God and cry out to God. And after that, and he will rise. God's favor will come upon him, will arise a movement that turns into a remnant coming back, the building of the walls and the setting up of the gates, all out of one man's grief. But he did not turn the grief towards himself, which he destroyed. He turned that grief into something what we call as godly. Godly. So everything you need to realize, if you turn now, turn with me to another place, First Samuel, chapter 1, words 1 and 2, and then 6 and 7. Okay. Now there was a certain man of Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham. Okay, all the names we will leave. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other was Penina. Now, probably Hannah is his first wife. He had no children. So he married again. Penina. Now Penina had children. Hannah had no children. So it was year by year they went to, yeah, yeah, I gave you six and seven, okay? So what has happened is one has children, the other does not have children. And a rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had caused her. Closed her book. It's the same story being repeated what we see with Leah and Rachel. So even if you are, um, Rachel wants to commit suicide, the reason is that what happens on the other side of the tent, we do not know. Leah and the other must have been provoking her. Okay, maybe he loves you, but you are barren. You cannot bear him a child. This provocation, and especially provocation comes when, in this case, the husband has two wives and he loves one. In the Jacob's case also did the same thing. He loves Rachel. But Rachel is barren. Okay? Jacob loves Leah. But Leah is fruitful. Okay. Now God says, take only one wife. But says, if you take two wives, you love them both. 
And if you don't love them both, I will shut the womb of the one whom you love. Because in both cases, it's God who shut the womb. In both cases, it's God who opens the womb. He says there, when he saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb. So this sovereignty of God plays not only over international and national hours, even in homes where he has a purpose. In marriages, lives, homes, families, all these things are playing out. So God closed her womb. And she's being provoked, and she's being provoked and provoked, and she's miserable. Miserable. Every year they go to Shiloh. And when they go over to Shiloh, they provoke her even more. Why? Because when you are going to Shiloh, you are offering, offering of sacrifices. So Elkanah is offering sacrifices for himself, and then for Hannah, and then Penina, and then Penina's sons and daughters. And she says, you see, you had only one sacrifice, I had seven sacrifices. So even sacrifice becomes an issue of provocation. No? While they're going, no? Selena will tell Lana, he did not, you did not have any children for my husband to, to, you know? So, you know, so they will change vocabulary, you know, he'll say, my husband loves me, but my Penina will say, but he's the father of my children. Psst, Hannah is gone. You need to understand how community works. Okay? So provoking, miserable, provoking, miserable. <laughs> Then, one of the times when they were going, verse 9 to 11. So, Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now the priest was sitting at the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. For the first time, what is happening is... She is turning her grief and her anguish towards God. From worldly sorrow that leads to death to godly sorrow, God. And she made a vow. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the afflictions of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. So you need to realize when you turn towards God is when you have hope. This is godly sorrow. Now she's turning her grief towards God and out of that grief comes a purpose. It's a purpose. Okay, It's a godly purpose. You give me a child, a male child, I promise you will be separated unto you. And you know what happens over there? If we read the whole passage carefully, if you go towards uh, 17 and 18 and all, you will see, you know, I mean, before that, but we'll just look. Eli answered and said, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. Eli had no clue what her petition was. She never told him. She said, I was only grieving and mourning over what is what I am going through. He must have assumed, okay, all these women who cry there, they are crying for a child. But he did not know. He says, whatever it is, let the Lord answer your petition. Okay, this is where we have to be very, very careful about it is because when you hear the word of God from the servant of God, don't judge the servant. Don't judge the servant. Because if she judged Ellie, she will not hear and receive that blessing. 
This is where we have to be very, very careful. Eli is a man who's gone spiritually blind. But the problem is he's got an office. And the office carries weight. The office carries weight. So on, on the standing on his office, he has also no clue because he must have used the same words to so many people. May the Lord grant your request. What are you pay? May the Lord grant your request. May the Lord grant your progress. But with one, one received it by faith. Ten people that day, hundred people, he said the same words. It makes no difference. The words are the same, but the recipient is different. The recipient received because she had cried out to the Lord in anguish. She had made her vow to the Lord. She takes the same words to her heart and she says, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way, ate, and her face was no longer sad. Remember, she hasn't gone home yet. Okay. She turned her hope towards God. She heard the word. She received it and believed. And now faith is the substance of things hoped for. What she does is that the grief lives. The grief lives. She's not going grieving. That is what is giving substance to our hope. She has not come together with her husband yet. But something has happened to her spiritually. How do you know? You have heard, believed the word you have heard. What has it cost to your countenance? What has it cost to your heart? The Bible says she was no longer sad. If you go to verse 19. They rose early in the morning. And worshipped before the Lord. Okay. So who is they? Elkanah, Hannah, Peninnah, and Peninnah's children. But you know what? One person's worship that day was not like the others. They all worshipped. Outwardly, if you look at it, all worshipped. But Hannah's worship is not the same. Hannah's worship is not the same. And the Bible says, Elkanah knew Hannah. And the Lord remembered her. The Lord remembered her. And the rest is history. Because the child she swore is Samuel. But you have to ask yourself the question. You will have a son that is birthed. The mother who will keep her vow raises him up to serve the Lord. He will become one of the first one of the judges of Israel. One of the most anointed godly judges Israel would ever have who will be a priest and a prophet and a judge, practically a king. He will be all that. But what started all this? It was grief. It was grief. Okay, so I said grief and anger are God-given emotions. But if you grieve and turns to self-pity and you keep on weeping and crying and fasting and all, nothing is going to happen. That's what she did for years. But when she turned it towards God and made her covenant or commitment before God, things started changing. God intervened. So the simple question is that I'm grieving, but can God intervene? Okay, am I grieving? Am I angry? Am I angry? Okay, anger is a good emotion. God says, be angry but do not sin because these are all powerful emotions which God has given to man so that it will propel us to fulfill the purpose of God in our lives. Like I said, there are people who have grief but it is self-pity. Who are angry, who are angry at everybody but not angry at the real cause. And there are others who are not moved by anything.
they have no grief they have no anger they have status quo okay but the problem is if these things are not there you cannot rise turn to mark chapter 16 verse 9 to 9 to 13 when he rose early on the first day of the week he appeared first to Mary Magdalene out of whom he had cast seven demons she went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept you know there was a set of people who were really mourning and weeping three days they're still weeping and mourning because you know what you cannot know Jesus and not mourn knowing that he's dead they are hopeless grieving and mourning and when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her they did not believe this is what happens grief which leads to hopelessness can blind you can blind you it blinds you you are not able to see you are not able to see here is somebody who comes and gives a personal testimony the lord is risen he had spoken all that to him all the words he had spoken that i will rise on the third day everything he had spoken now there is a human witness saying that you know what the lord is risen but they so blinded overwhelmed by their grief they are not able to see so we have to look at these things because these are things that is blinding men women around the world because this is the danger of self so the devil knows grief is a very powerful thing he knows it is so he knows that if this person grieves in the right way he or she can be used by god very powerfully it will create enormous damage to my kingdom so let me just change its direction i cannot stop from them from grieving i i can try to change its direction towards from towards god to towards self they knew what happened said you don't see you are not able to see they are hearing the best news ever christ is risen and they do not see they are not able to see after that he appeared to another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country and when they went and told to the rest they did not believe them either one witness two witness they still did not believe so you need to realize what grief can do as such you have unbelief and doubt now grief is empowering it turn to genesis chapter 21 verse 14 onwards abram rose early in the morning took bread and a skin of water putting it on her shoulder gave it and the boy to hagar and sent her away she departed and wandered in the wilderness of beersheba okay this we see things are written only for a few lines but these are stories that are repeated a billion times down the centuries a woman is chucked out with her child there's a single mother on the streets literally single mother man has walked out okay in this case god told him to get but the picture is the same the man has walked out and the mother is left with a single a single mother is with no no sources of support no resources nothing you can understand you are coming from the house of security abraham one of the richest guys house of security and this boy is his boy 
But something has changed. Another boy has come. Have, they are not looking at the covenant promise. They don't understand any of these things. Okay? They are not able to understand. All you know is that one day everything was fine. The next day you are on the streets. On the streets. And out. She departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Why is she wandering? Because she's in a grief. She has no direction. The problem is one of the things worldly grief does is you lose direction. See, that's why if you look in all the cars of the vehicles we drive, it's got a very large windshield and a small rear view mirror. Because you're supposed to look forward. But if your mind is on the rear view mirror, you will not be able to see where you are going. Going. That's what basically happening. She's distraught. She's distraught. And she's petrified. Where do I go? Where do I go? Where do I go? We need to understand these are things which people sometimes, you know, women who are sitting there and secure do not understand the trauma of insecure women. You need to understand order. In the beginning, God said it is not good for man to be alone. He did not say man should not be alone. He said it's not good for man to be alone. But man has already learned to be alone. But a woman has never learned to be alone because when she was created, man is already there. So woman should never be alone. Because from 6,000 years of human history, when every battle has taken place, it's a woman who suffers, raped and murdered and enslaved. That is why the fundamental principle, the woman always should have a head. What is the purpose of the head? So he will provide and secure her. She's never safe in any country if she's alone. But a man is still safe. It's still safe. It's still safe. Still safe. We have to ask these questions. So we have to be very, very careful. So yesterday when I said at the end of the message, when I said it is an actual fact, when you are raising up a child, the child should be always be raised up saying, Lord, my first priority even as I acquire all these skills is that, Lord, I'm moving from one head, let me move under another head. So I can be always safe and secure. Secure. Man doesn't have that issue. Man doesn't have that issue. But a woman has an issue. Let me ask you this question. There is a man on the streets on at 12 o'clock midnight. And there is a girl at midnight at 12 o'clock. Who will you worry about? In whichever nation. Who is safer? The man may be robbed if he has money. Otherwise they'll leave him alone. But the woman is not robbed. So here is a woman. She is distraught. She is wandering there in the wilderness. And then verse 15, it says she couldn't handle the water and the skin was used up. So this is a wilderness journey. She's walking in the desert. They run out of water. She placed the boy under one of the shrubs. She went and sat down across from him at the distance of a part of Oshod. For she said to herself, let me not see the death of the boy. And she sat opposite him and lifted her voice and wept. So this is not happening in one hour or two hours. This is happening over a period of time. We don't know how long it's taking over a period of time. And they are thirsty. And you know, thirst is worse than hunger. You can go hungry for 40 days. How many hours can you do without water? And she's seeing the desperation of the boy. And she says, you know what, I cannot watch him die. And she wept. And the word of God says, the Lord heard the voice of the lad. 
And the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not. For God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. He says, don't worry. I've heard the voice of the child. I've heard. I know. You are worried about the child. <laughs> you said, I cannot watch this boy die. I'm going to turn away. Lord, I cannot handle it. And he's crying. And you are not crying over your misery. You are crying over his misery. See, it's very easy to demean Hagar and all, but she's a mother. She's not crying over her thirst. She's crying over the child's thirst. She's not crying over her loss. She's crying over the loss. And God says, arise. Arise. Lift up the lad and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. Nation. And the Bible says in verse 19, God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. Meaning it was right there. The simple question, why was she not able to see? What blinded her? It was grief. It was grief that blinded her. Absolutely hopeless grief. This is a grief which leads to death. Literally would have led to her death if God hadn't opened her eyes. And God says, you know what? I heard the boys cry. Okay, and hope is burst. He opens her eyes and she is able to see. And he says, now, arise and arise and hold. So the Bible says, God was with the lad and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became man archer. I want to hold it there and go to Genesis 17 and read from 18 to 21. Just a few years earlier. Ramba, this is when God comes and again tells circumcision and then says about another child. And Abraham's prayer is, he laughs because he says, I am old, Sarah is old. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no. Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son. You shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant with his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful, will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget twelve princes. I will make him a great nation. Okay? Now if you come to Genesis, the earlier one, chapter 21. 21. Arise, lift up the lad, hold him with your hand, for I will make. And verse 20, I want to look at verse 20. And God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness. Okay, you need to realize, if only the Ishmaelites, the Muslims, were to see this. To see this. See, there is God's eternal purpose, and there is God's temporal purpose. When it came to temporal purpose, God's blessings upon Isaac and Ishmael are the same. What was different was the eternal purpose. Christ is going to come from Israel and not through Ishmael. If only they were to see this, the difference. I will bless him. I'll make him a great nation. And the Lord was with Ishmael as he was with Isaac. God is not a respect of persons. But his plan for one child may be different from the other child. His plan with Isaac is an eternal plan connected with Christ. His plan for Ishmael is a temporal plan. If the Muslims were to see that, their anger and hatred towards Israel will change. Because the entire thing is rooted over Christ. It is not rooted over anything else. It's only to do with Christ. 
And Ishmael, actually, if you look at it, has been equally blessed. If not more. This is fundamental. See, this is what happens. Anger can blind you. Hatred can blind you. Grief can blind you. Bitterness can blind you. But that's not what scripture says. Scripture says, I was. I was. He was with the boy. So these are all emotions. And emotions are important. Like, But they are good servants. But when they master you, you cannot live without emotions. If you live without emotion, you are an animal. They don't have it. They have better. Sometimes some animals have better emotions than humans have. Okay? You cannot live without emotions because God has emotions. God is angry. God grieves. God laughs. All our emotions, but God is not bitter. Whatever emotion is not associated with God, if you identify yourself, reject it because God is not bitter. God is not lazy. God is not fearful. So these things we need to look at and reject. But whatever is of God, suddenly you need to realize, if I turn it towards God, it can be very powerful, a motivating factor in bringing forth the purposes of God. The purposes of God. That's what he's trying to tell. Going back to Joshua chapter 1 and verse 2. Chapter 1 and verse 2. Moses, my servant, is dead. He's dead. Now arise. Joshua, there's a finality. He's dead. Why does he have to tell that? Because nobody saw Moses die. Nobody saw Moses coming back. They're still waiting. They know he's dead. But there is still hope. Because, okay, prove me, like Thomas said, until he's risen. So prove me he's risen until I put. So in the same way, he's dead. But where is he buried? Where is the body? But he's dead. God is telling Joshua, he's dead. He's dead. Okay. And they have mourned also 30 days. But still deep inside, did he really die? It's a finality. It's a finality. But please understand this. Go to Exodus 17, verse 11 and, uh, 11 and 12. This is the first time we hear Joshua, right? The first time here. Like I said, subsequently when we read about that, you will see that Joshua knew Moses probably better than even Moses' own wife. Because Moses, Joshua was privy to certain interactions of Moses with God, which his wife did not know. She must have heard, but she never experienced. Joshua was with Moses up there, a little below, but up there when Moses went into the clouds, 40 days. Joshua was always there when Moses went into the tabernacle. So his awe for Moses, his relationship with Moses, his regard for Moses, his dependency on Moses is different from the rest of the others. And because his life with Moses was framed in the first encounter, it is written, Moses sent Joshua with select people to fight Amalek. And it realizes that when Moses, then go to verse 11, when Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. When he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. 
So Joshua realized something. It didn't matter how hard or well he fought. His victory was dependent upon him. And now that man is dead. That man is dead. Now you can understand his grief. And can you understand his fear? Be fearful. Do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. Be strong. Be courageous. Be strong. Very strong. Why is God telling all him? Because he understands. He says, you know what? I, I know where you began. You began with Moses. And when you began Moses, your relationship with Moses began the day when you fought Amalek. And you know really, you know how well you fought. You know how hard you fought. But you also realize your victory was entirely dependent upon that man. When his hands came down, you lost. It didn't matter how well you fought. But when his hands was up, it didn't matter how tired you were. You won. Now God is coming and telling him, that man is dead. Arise. That man is dead. That man is dead. If you come to Deuteronomy, chapter 1 and verse 3, and we shall close. So it came to pass, in the 40th year, in the 11th month, on the first day of the month, Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all the Lord had given him as a commandment to them. You see that? The entire book of Deuteronomy is starting on this day. First day, let us say in our terms, number first. And I believe it's a 30-day period. The whole book is recited and the law is recited 30 days. Every day they rise up and come stand Moses. Refresher course for the new generation. 30 days. Then on the 30th day, he dies. They have 30 days mourning. And then God comes and says, this was the last man standing. All the others had died. If you read 3.14, Deuteronomy 3.14, if I'm right. If I'm right, it is it. No, third, uh, 2.14, 2.14. Yes, you do 14. Yeah, at the time, we took to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed through the valley of Gezeret was 38, until all the generation of the men of war was consumed from the midst of the camp, just as the Lord has sworn to them. <coughs> Who's speaking? Moses. I mean, he's the only one left. Everybody's dead. But God cannot fulfill his promise until the last man has died. One man is still alive. And the problem is he won't die. <laughs> God literally has to withdraw his life from him. You know? So this is the last man standing. The, literally the last man standing. He's standing over there, the last man standing. And on the eleventh month, you look at the, why this matters is all these things matter. God has a time for everything. But if God already has spoken at a time, you can be absolutely sure at that time it will happen. He said 40 years. Under the last person. Last person. And you have come to the 40th year. You are on the eleventh month. First day, Deuteronomy is given. I believe at 30 days it is over. Moses dies, you have given by the law 30 days to mourn, mourning is over, the Lord speaks to him and says, 40 years are up, Moses is dead, arise and cross over. Arise and cross over. Do you see how it fits in? How it all fits in? Last words for today, Revelation chapter 1, 17 and 18. 
And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. Again, what he told Joshua, don't be afraid. Why? I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive for evermore. This is not Moses. Moses is dead. Jesus is alive forevermore. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. That's why we don't have to fear. Moses is dead. Finality. Jesus is not dead. Jesus is not dead. Jesus is not dead. But sometimes people miss something over here. If you look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand on me. If I am right in the book of Revelation, you will never see John rising. Everything that happens in the book of Revelation is he's on his face, he's dead in his flesh. Everything is happening in the spirit. He does not rise. He does not rise. He does not rise. What rises is his spirit. It is in the spirit, come up here, come up here. The body is dead because of sin. But the spirit is life. God says, you know what? Lie like one dead there before me, in your body. And then you will be able to see in your spirit that Jesus lives forevermore. And he has the keys of death and Hades. You don't have to fear anymore. And he lives for, alive for evermore. That's where faith comes from. So these are all positioning in the spiritual realm to receive the courage and the boldness and the grace of God to fulfill our purpose. Because this is a man who thought it was over. His life is finished. But he didn't realize it was only actually finishing. Starting his real purpose. Because you can take revelation out. We will not even have hope. What brings hope to the believing saint is the book of Revelation. We know in advance how things will all end. We know it. But when did it come? It came at the end of his life. So it, nothing is finished until God says it is over. It's over. So we have to look at that one fundamental thing. Grief is given by God. But we have to be very, very careful. If it becomes self-pity, it will blind us. It will blind us. We are digging a hole for ourselves. But we have to grieve. If we don't grieve, then there is something wrong with us. That means we had no attachments. We have to grieve. When there is a loss of something, okay? The prodigal son was lost. If the father did not grieve, then there is no reconciliation and joy and singing and dancing. Why is there so much joy in heaven when every time a sinner repents because there is grief? There is grief. There is always grief in heaven. Because man is lost. Okay, man is lost. And if that grief is not permeated into our own spirit that our God, our Savior, our Father grieves over the state of mankind, then we are not propelled into anything. And then when you look at the evil that is happening, there should be a righteous anger. So these are very powerful forces. 
You cannot be nonchalant about these things. You cannot be nonchalant about this thing. Anger and grief. But godly give grief is what changes, leads to a change of mind and to salvation. Where does a change of mind comes? Because you look into the word of God. Nehemiah grieved, but he also looked into the word of God and said, Lord, you said, if we are unfaithful, this will happen. If we return, this will happen. And God's favor was there. He was looking for a man, one man. The Bible always says he looks for one man who will stand in the gap. What is he standing in the gap? Destruction is taking place. Distrust is taking place. Terror is taking place. He's looking for one man who will be moved by this thing. And when he finds that man, he uses the man in a very local or a national, whatever level. Forget the level. But he uses the man to begin a movement. But you need to look back and see what started that movement. It was grief. Let me ask you this question. If God was not grieved over the fall of man, would Christ come? No. He came because the Father was grieved. He says, he was so astounded that he found no man. So his right hand said, I will work out the salvation. God was shocked. He said, nobody is moved by anything. He said, nobody was willing to stand in the gap. The son said, I will. That is his right hand. Who sits at his right hand? It is Jesus. He was moved by the grief of the father, of the loss of his creation, and the anger of the father by the evil that was happening. And the son said, I will. We need to look at ourselves and ask, are we moved? Are we moved? What are we moved by? What are we moved by? And at every level of human strata, God is looking for his instruments. At a political level, at a courthouse, at the police. Everywhere God is looking for one per- a person or a group of persons who will stand up and say, Lord, I am moved. And that is how it all begins. And then we all become part of God's global plan for the redemption of mankind. So this morning we will have Peter back. And we will pray. We will continue praying. Until the kingdom of God come. You are the Holy One. You are God's only Son. Your righteousness is pure. We are complete in you when we submit to truth. Your judgments, they are sure. For we desire majesty that we might live by your degree. Establish righteousness in us.
Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. This morning, I believe the Lord has spoken. The Lord of broken and angry people out there in the world. Lord of them. Both broken and angry. But if either your grief or your anger is misdirected, you will destroy yourself. That's how the enemy destroys. But if you use your grief in the manner prescribed by God, God will use it to change the lives of others. The first thing that is described in the Bible when eternity begins, when the Father comes down to dwell with His people in the new city, the first thing He does is to wipe His people's tears. The first thing He does is to wipe their tears, those who had grieved. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Nehemiah mourned. Jerusalem was comforted. Hagar mourned. Ishmaelites were comforted. Don't waste what is God given. Don't waste your anger on useless things. Let it propel you and not cripple you. Because it can cripple you until your entire motivation is hatred. Anger and hatred and bitterness like Cain or Ahitophel. That's why God says, be angry. Be angry at the evil. Be angry at the wickedness. And say, Lord, how do I, how do I become part of the change and not a part of the problem? Help me, Lord. What should I do here? God will show you. Jesus. Nehemiah cried out to the Lord in his grief. God supernaturally touched the king. And Nehemiah had favor. And when he went to Jerusalem and gave his testimony, they were all encouraged and they said, Let us rise and build. For the good hand of the Lord is upon us. Let us rise and let us build. Hallelujah. God is telling Joshua, I know how dependent you were on Moses. But it was not Moses who did all that. I who did it as I was with Moses so will I be with you all the days of your life every place the sole of your foot treads I give it to you Moses is dead but Jesus lives forevermore the keys of death and Hades is in his hands not in the devil's hands we don't have to fear grave we don't have to fear death for to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord we don't have to fear not even a second 
will our soul tarry in the grave? Not even a second. There's nothing to fear. God says, fear not. This morning, Father, I pray and I commit. All your children, your servants are yes, there. Yes, yes. Whatever field you have called them to be, yes, yes. they are to stand. The day of evil is here. We are standing in the day of evil. Yes, and you need men and women and even children who will stand yes, yes. until the tide passes and yes. be found standing. Whatever is causing them, whether it is grief or anger, I pray they will direct it correctly. It will empower them. The Spirit of God can equip them and use their grief and their anger for the salvation of others. That nobody will be nonchalant at this hour. Hide their heads in the sand. That's what Mordecai told Esther. For a time such as this, you were born, you were chosen. But if you do not rise up, salvation will come from another quarter. Every child of God will be at that crossroads in life. And he or she has to rise and say, Lord, here I am. Here I am. I want to be part of that kingdom on earth. Your kingdom. The greatest movement that as man has seen for the past 2,000 years. And that kingdom advances with violence. And violent men take it by force. It's a violence caused by grief. It's a violence caused by anger over evil. churning today in the body of Christ as they listen. This 30th day, 30 days, Israel had mourned for Israel. Moses, 30 days were over. Now God said to Joshua, arise. 30 days of the first month is over for all those who haven't shaken off their lethargy. God says, arise. 30 days are up. Arise. Take your place in the army of God. Take your place in the kingdom. Forty years are over. Redeem your time. Come into your servants, Lord, into thy hands once again. Touch them. Touch them. Age is no factor. When you told Joshua to rise, he was 18. I pray for all the dear ones out there. They are not young, but it doesn't matter. Sister Penny, Uncle Marshall, Brother Lynn, Ace, RG, all of them, late 70s, 80s, it does not matter. Because the very spirit of Christ who dwells in them will quicken their mortal bodies. He will give us strength for the hour, strength for the battle, 
good to be weak. If you lean on to God, for God says when you are weak, then I am strong. We praise you, we worship you, we glorify you, Lord. Yes, Lord. And we continue to proclaim, Thine is, is the, the kingdom, kingdom, the power and, and the, the glory, glory forever, forever and, and ever. ever. Amen. Amen. Amen.